Second Corinthians, 13 chapters here tonight that we're going to just fly over and get a bit of a, a bird's eye view as to what's going on, what this book is all about, why is Paul right? It's an interesting book. Boy, a lot of... I've been reading through Second Corinthians just in my devotions the last uh, few days, and just, man, there are, it's amazing how many great nuggets of truth and solid scripture. I mean, it's all solid, isn't it? But it's, it's interesting when you go through all these great verses that we oftentimes, you know, know, we quote, like, Second Corinthians, because it's usually a book that you just kind of don't think too much about, right? Oh, it's just, you know, the, the sequel to... First uh, Corinthians, it's just really nothing much. You know, Paul's throwing a few things in there, writing to this church. It's got all these. You, you kind of just don't think about Second Corinthians being so full of just great truth and 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 wisdom and 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 gospel um, and a truth to us here. It's so good. So we're going to look at some of those here tonight. But uh, again, just to kind of give you a bit of a, a background. Acts 18 really gives us the background to um, Paul's ministry that was taking place in Corinth. And it was there that, remember, he had met uh, Aquila and Priscilla. It was there on a second missionary journey, began to work with them in that tent-making trade. And as usual, you know, Paul, in the cities he had visited, would go into the synagogue and begin to look to minister to the Jews, even though God had called them into the, you know, called them to the Gentiles. But Paul had a heart for his people. He'd go to the synagogue, and oftentimes that didn't go so well. Then he would kind of get pushed out and and begin to reach out to other people. Well, same thing happened in Corinth. And so as he was opposed, it it causes him to go to Justice's house, which was right next door to the synagogue. And as a result, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, ends up getting saved. He and his household... And so that became the, the beginning of the church there in Corinth. And sure enough, you know, Paul stayed there for a lengthy time in comparison to a lot of the stops that he'd make in different cities. About a year and a half, he stayed in Corinth ministering there, seeing this church be established and a fruitful ministry begun there. But then Paul eventually moves on to Ephesus, and it's there that it's believed that he wrote now the first letter to the church of Corinth to really address some of the concerns and problems his word had come to him based on some of the things that were were going on. Now, the second letter to this Corinthian church was written about a year and a half after that first letter was written. Again, that first letter uh, had been somewhat of a corrective letter as Paul was writing to address some of the problems and abuses that were going on in the church. There were, you know, these little divisions that were creating a little denominationalism. I'm, you know, a Paul, uh, I'm a Peter, I'm a Paul's or a Christ, and all these de- denominations, in a sense, were forming right within the church. And then there was a lot of sin that was creeping in. Remember, Corinth was kind of the, the capital, really, of, of immorality and just a lot of, uh, of wicked stuff that was going on within the city. And sadly, the church instead of it, it beginning to, you know, um, penetrate the culture, the, ch- the culture, rather, was permeating the church, all right? It's like a boat, you know, you go out in a boat in water, well, you want that boat to be above water for long. When you start to get water into the boat, that's a problem. That's what was happening in Corinth. It's getting a little bit too much of the culture within the church. So Paul's writing to address all these things that were going on, immorality and, and, and wickedness and the, the divisions that were going on. And, and so we see in, um, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul was writing now that he was longing to go to Ephesus and 
and uh, there's a great opportunity ministry there. So Paul went there, stayed there for three years, and then he began to move on. As, again, like most places Paul goes to, <laughs> I mean, it caused a bit of a riot as Paul gets out there and he's sharing the gospel. And so remember everybody comes into the, the theater there in Ephesus, like thousands of people, and they're just all rioting. Some don't even know what's going on. They're just like, I came along with the crowd, man. I just thought this is gonna be fun and exciting. But they're all rioting against Paul, and so Paul has to get taken out of the city. So he moves on, goes to Troas, and it's there in Troas that he's waiting now for Titus, who was sent to Corinth, to find out how the church is doing. And he's waiting there in Troas, but then eventually moves on to Macedonia where, where Titus eventually meets up with Paul and gives word on the church at Corinth. And it's believed there in Macedonia. In fact, let me throw up a little map here because these are, uh, Macedonia is way up on the left corner there, top corner. Corinth is there in Achaia, uh, very small. I'm sorry, you can barely see that. But you see Corinth right in Achaia. Uh, Paul was over in Ephesus in Asia, goes to Troas, then across to Macedonia. And uh, it's there that he meets up with Titus and he gets word on, on how things are going at the church in, in Corinth. And he, um, you know, Paul was a little bit worried about how they had received his first letter. Because again, it, there was a lot of correction he had to bring and, and kind of address some things that were hard to do. He's a little worried about how people are receiving it. But, but Titus brings word back to Paul that, listen, some have re received it really well. There's been some repentance. There's been some change. But there were also the opposite reactions by some, because there were those now that had some resentment towards Paul. They were wondering, hey, where's, how come Paul's not coming to visit us? Who does Paul think he is anyways? He claims himself to be an apostle, but is he really truly one of the apostles? And so there were those that were resenting Paul and his ministry, essentially thinking him to be untrustworthy and lacking real apostolic authority. So they're looking to really drag him and drag his name and character even through the mud. So it's there at Philippi, gets word from Titus that he addresses now the second letter to the church of Corinth to address some of these concerns that are being raised up by some that were infiltrating the church with really some, some bad motives, all right? Looking to kind of have their way, do, do their agenda rather than, than listen to Paul. So Paul looks to uh, address some of these things here. And this letter, uh, the second letter to the Corinthian church is really one of Paul's most autobiographical letter. It's filled with just some real personal, heartfelt writing that he shares with the people. And he's looking to really defend his conduct, his character, and his calling as an apostle. So here's what we're going to be looking at as we divide up this book here. We're going to see, first of all, Paul explains his ministry, chapters 1 to 7. We're going to see how Paul is encouraging their generosity in this act of giving, all right? This gift that's being given to the Jerusalem believers. So we'll look at that in chapters eight to nine. And then the last chapters, chapters 10 to 13, Paul enforces his authority. It's interesting, chapters 10 to 13, I'll share this with you just for whatever it's worth for you. Um, remember in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about an earlier letter he'd written him. So 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter he wrote. Some believe that there was actually a fourth letter. That 2 Corinthians is not the third letter being written, but there's a, a fourth letter actually written here. Um, some believe that chapters 10 to 13 actually are that letter that were just kind of added on to this book here because the, the, 
you know, the mood in a sense really changes in chapters 10 to 13 as Paul looks to really enforce some authority here. Some believe it could be a fourth letter. We're, we're not sure. We're not going to make a big deal about it, but just some things that you might hear or read about here. Um, there were three letters written to the church, possibly four. We're not sure on that, but we'll take this as one whole letter, the third letter being written to the church at Corinth. Are y'all just utterly confused now? Are y'all still with me? Everybody's okay? Everybody's good? All right. So let's pick it up in chapter one, of course. Let's look at verse three. Uh, you know, no, let's go to verse one, just to give us a good running start. Paul gives the usual, you know, greeting here to the church here. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then Timothy, our brother Timothy, was his companion traveling with him there. And so Timothy is included here in the introduction. And he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all the cave, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul usually starts all of his letters. He always starts with grace and peace. And it's always in that order because, as you know, you cannot have the peace of God unless you know the grace of God. The grace of God is what is that which allows us to, to really have that peace of God. Because if we don't know the grace, that we're saved by grace, it's not by what we do, then you're gonna constantly be in this influx of, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I gonna be right with God? Am I gonna make it to heaven? There's no peace. But suddenly when you start to really understand the grace of God, that you're saved not by what you do, it's not of yourselves, it's the, it's the grace of God, so that nobody can boast, then you also like, thank you, Lord. Man, I can rest at night now knowing that I'm forgiven and I'm saved and I have just such peace with God. Now, isn't that great to know? So Paul loves to, to remind people of those things. It's called the Siamese twins of scriptures, grace and peace. And they're always in that order when Paul is writing that in his introductions here. And then he goes on to say in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Verse seven, and our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Now, I like this term that, that Paul uses of God here. How, how does he refer to God? He's the God of all, what? He's the God of all comfort. Isn't that wonderful to know? And Paul has certainly had some experience in these very things and in seeing God come and be that comfort in Paul's life. Remember back in, in, in Acts chapter 18, I mean, Paul had gone through a lot of difficulties and hardships, some of which we're gonna be reading about in 2 Corinthians here, but all through these things like that Paul faced, he was an ordinary guy, he faced discouragement, depression, but in each of those times, God was right there to encourage him and comfort him. Acts chapter 18, verse nine and 10. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. And then when Paul was in Jerusalem, it was a dark time, but the Lord was faithful. Acts 23, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And while sailing to Rome, when the storm, you know, began to rage, the Lord again 
comforted Paul in Acts 27, verse 22 to 24. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. So many times, Paul, in very distressing moments, has seen and experienced the comfort of God. And it's what God wants each and every one of us to understand who he is and the comfort that he has for you in those times when you are facing hardships and difficulty. Now, Paul says in verse four that we're, we're comforted now in all our tribulations. That word tribulations and trouble is the Greek word thalipsis. Thalipsis, all right? That's, it's like you gotta say that with a little bit of a lisp there. Thalipsis. And it means a, a pressing or a pressure. In this day, in Roman culture, if they caught someone that they perceived to be bad and they wanted to get information out of him, they would lay the individual down, place a board over his chest, and roll a large boulder upon it. With every slight breath the person let out, the boulder would rest heavier upon him until it would crush and kill him. Similar tactics were applied in England's history. R.C. Trench writes, when according to the ancient law of England, those who willfully refused to plead had heavy weights placed on their breasts and were pressed and crushed to death. This was literally Philipsis. That's what Paul is saying when he speaks about this word tribulations, that he is being pressed down in a sense. I mean, I mean squeezed out at times. I'm sure many of you have felt like that, the pressures that are just mounting and just seems like they're squeezing the life out of you at times. And some of you might be thinking through those times, I thought that Christian life was to be easy. <laughs> I thought that Christian life was to spare me from all of those things. Have you ever thought that before? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But that's never the guarantee. That's never what we're promised as believers, you see. But Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we're hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Remember that? Paul says, we're hard pressed on every side, but guys, guess what? We're not crushed. Oh, God allows us to be squeezed at times, but not to the point of death. You see what happens when we get squeezed? Well, we get to see what's in us. We get to see what's coming out. We get to see, Lord, am I serving you in a way where you're seen? Or is there still a lot of me and, and that selfish junk that needs to get squeezed out? Lord, I wanna be pressed in a way that all the more just reveals who you are and what you're doing in me and, and through me. So Paul says, we're hard pressed on every side yet not crushed, we're perplexed, but not in despair. So why does God allow these things to happen in our lives? Why, why do we go through these things? Well, not only does it see what's in us, but it's also so that God can do a greater work in us and use us to do a greater work in others. See, we see a few reasons here in this first section of, of this chapter here uh, of why God allows us to go through trying and pressing times. First of all, it's so that we might experience God's comfort and share it with others. Notice what he says there in verse four, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a tremendous learning and growing experience that we gain when we go through trials, but it's also so that we can 
come alongside others in their place of, of need or, or hurt or, or difficulty so we can come alongside and, and comfort them with the comfort by which we've experienced in and through God. That word for comfort is that Greek word parakaleo, which means to call to one side, to console, to encourage and strengthen. The Holy Spirit is referred to as our helper or comforter, the parakletos. So again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. But God has called us to come alongside others in their difficulty and pain and hurt so we can comfort them with the comfort that we've been comforted by God. And we're not gonna be comforted by the, with the comfort by God unless we're going through things by which we need to be comforted by. Do you see how that works? So when you face those difficulties and trials, they're not to say, God, where are you? Why don't you love me? Why did this happen? It's so that we can say, God, what do you want to do in me? What do you wanna teach me? Lord, reveal your comfort to me so that I can be strengthened and renewed in this and that I can be a greater encourager and comforter to other people. So that's one reason why that happens. Secondly, it's so that his love and comfort for us may be known all the more. The New Living Translation puts it this way. In verse five, it says, you can be sure that the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Now, New King James Version talks about this consolation, that the consolation may abound through Christ. That's the idea of comfort again. When we think of consolation, we usually think of, you know, a prize given to the loser, right? That's kind of, oh, you won the consolation prize, which means you didn't win the grand prize. You're like runner up. You didn't quite make it, right? That's the prize for the, the loser here in a sense. But, but think about the beauty of this here. The loser doesn't leave empty handed. You see, when we suffer, we can tend to think, I'm really losing out here. What have I, what have I done? Yet God is saying, on the contrary, you're actually gaining something. We're getting filled with more of the Lord, more of his blessing, more of his love, kindness, and comfort that's getting showered upon us. And it's through our suffering that our senses towards these things now begin to be piqued all the more. And thirdly, it teaches us to be dependent upon God. Look at verse eight. We haven't read verse eight yet. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, there are times when the Lord brings us to the end of our resources, so we'll come to the beginning of his. So we'll begin to understand what God wants to do in any given situation. Listen, Paul says, God is able to even raise the dead. So your problem that you're going through is nothing for the Lord. But what he wants you to do is to look to him and be confident and dependent that God will sustain you and take you through and bring you through to the other side faithfully. And lastly, number four, it leads us to pray more. Look at verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So not only are we those that are moved to pray for those that we know are going through difficulty, that need that comfort of the Lord, but boy, aren't you gonna be that much more prone to pray for your need and your situation when you're going through hardship. Don't you find that? We oftentimes feel like, ah, you know, when things are going well, I don't really need a, 
seek the Lord that much. I mean, things are going well. But man, when things are reversed and you're going through the ringer, oh man, you, you turn into like a prayer warrior. You're like, man, I've never interceded like this in my life before. But now you got more reason to in a sense. Sadly, that, that's the case. And it shouldn't be because we should be those that are praying, seeking the Lord just because there's this great blessing of just communing with God. That's what prayer is about. It's not just to get what we need. It's to seek what God desires for us and just to be in communion with him. But nevertheless, when we go through these hardships, we know that it drives us to our knees all the more to say, God, I am in need of you all the more. Now, on this note of comfort, Paul brings up this issue of the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember that dude that Paul had to address? This is the guy that was living in sin in the church at Corinth who was messing around with his father's wife, his stepmother. And the church is kind of celebrating this as though like, well, hey, we're just walking in grace. We're not trying to come. To Paul had to come down on this guy and say, listen, this guy needs, if he's not gonna repent, he needs to be taken out of the church, excommunicated in a sense, handed over so that he'll see the error of his ways. Well, it turns out that this man was indeed put out of the church. Remember Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't let him remain in. Got to deal with these things. Paul came down heavy, but now it seems like this brother has indeed repented, but the church now was a little bit slow in receiving him back and in forgiving him. So on that topic of comfort, Paul has to bring this up to say, listen guys, speaking of comfort, you need to begin to show that now to those people that are truly repentant and are ready to come back in. So Paul instructs him to do this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, Chapter two, verse five, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So in other words, this was a church now that needed to look to this man that had truly repented, it would seem, and embrace him and bring him back into the fold. Why? So that he's not hanging out outside the church and being susceptible to Satan's schemes, which Paul says, we know very well that Satan is like that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we need to protect this guy. We need to bring him back into the protection of the church. That's why Paul had him taken out of the church so that he would see his need for the church and the body of Christ and to continue on in the things that Christ so that he'd be exposed to the things of the enemy, but that would move him on repentance. That's happened, but now the church needs to forgive. They need to take the very words of Jesus to heart here, where Jesus himself said in Luke 17, three, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Bring him back in and begin to comfort him, love him, and, and, and continue to minister to him that he might now be strengthened in his faith all the more. Now in chapter four, Paul begins by again 
confirming his ministry here now to those in Corinth again. His very ministry has been under some attack. The very authority of, of Paul, his, his right to an apostle in a, sense, in a sense is coming under attack by some in the church at Corinth. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, therefore since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, regardless of whatever attacks Paul might have endured, notice he says here, I don't lose heart. He knew he was called and that he was carrying out the very work of God by the mercy of God. And how this perspective to not lose heart can sure carry you through some rough times of which were numerous for Paul. To have that, that desire to say, I'm not gonna lose heart. I'm not gonna worry about these things. I know who I am. I know who God is called or what God has called me to do. I'm not gonna lose heart in these things. What we do ultimately, we do to serve the Lord, to please God as, as Paul's gonna say in 2 Corinthians 5. We make it our aim, he says, to please God. He's not looking to please man. He's not worried about what man might say. He's not losing heart on these things. And he says here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. You see, there were those that would have looked at Paul and thought, oh man, look at this guy. He doesn't really have that look of apostolic authority. He looks kind of small, kind of weak. Some people said Paul had a bit of a, you know, big nose. He didn't look the part, right? He didn't seem like a guy that really commanded your attention. And so there were those that were dismissive of Paul. But what does Paul say? Listen, oh, we are earthen vessels, no doubt about it. But we have a great treasure in this earthen vessel. Why? So that nobody's looking at us to go, oh, that guy. That's the guy you need to follow. Look at how big he is. Look at how, how mighty he speaks. Look at, look at the gift. Oh my goodness. That's, no, Paul says, we're just earthen vessels so that there's no attention on us. So that all the more we might see this glorious truth that we have, this, this treasure, which Paul's talking about just the gospel that we have, the very truth of what Jesus has implanted in us and caused us now to go and share with other people. We have a great treasure to pass on. It's not about who the presenter is. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. And anytime that, you know, people begin to put that emphasis upon the, the messenger, they're missing it. Because they're really just earthen vessels. So that, again, the, the power may be of God and not of us. Now, not only did Paul have a great perspective on the suffering he went through that 
it was all, you know, for the Lord and, and to keep him grounded in the Lord. There was another great perspective that Paul had through these things, and that's the eternal perspective. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says again, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter five, verse one. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Aren't you glad that when you're experiencing, you know, the aches and pains of this life, that it is only temporary? That's the perspective that Paul is revealing here in these things. Oh, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, oh man, Paul says, I've been through the ringer. I've been through the pains of, uh, of just, you know, living this life and, and, and the, the, the persecution, the abuse. From other, I felt these things. Though the outward man is perishing, that's not where my faith is in. That's not where my confidence is in. That's not where my hope is at. No, I know that when these things are laid down, we're gonna have a far greater work of God we're gonna have a, 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 a new body, right? He refers to this body, it's just a tent, right? And anybody that loves camping, you know that those tents are just temporary. You're just in there for a few days, right? If you're like me, it's no more than one day. You're like just, we'll set it up just for looks, but I'm gonna be at the hotel down the road. Like your tent is not where you're looking to really hunker down and make it your home. You know, it's temporary. Paul's viewing this body as just, it's a tent. And one day it's gonna be folded up, packed in, but then we're gonna be now clothed in that which is immortal, incorruptible. That's the perspective that Paul has. God's prepared a new place for us, a new body that's gonna be fit for eternity. And God's very purpose for us is to spend eternity with him. That's what he says there. He's prepared us in verse five, at chapter five, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. That's what God has in store for all of the followers of Jesus, that he wants us to be in eternity with him. So he's prepared a place for us, a body for us, that we can be with him for all of eternity. And he's given us, as it says at the end of verse five, his spirit as a guarantee of better things to come. Isn't that great? You're sealed with the Holy Spirit for God to say, you're mine, I've got you marked. You're not gonna be lost. You're not gonna be forsaken, abandoned. You're mine. And there's better things to come. So think about the stuff that Paul went through in this world. And we'll see it, no doubt. But I mean, he went through so much, but he has that great perspective. And I love what he says there in chapter four, verse 17. Notice this, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. Paul realizes that everything he goes through in this world is gonna count for eternity. 
Every act of service he does for God is gonna count for eternity. Everything he has to deal with, it's gonna, it's gonna amount to something far greater. Just like what he says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Think about that. And all those sufferings, Paul says, it's like he puts it on a scale. He says, when I balance these things out, all the sufferings of this world, oh man, the scales are tipped in favor of the glory that will be revealed in us one day. It'll always be better. It'll always be worth it. You will not sit in eternity and go, God, why'd I have to go through that? Why'd well, I have to deal with that? You're gonna sit in eternity and go, Lord, that that I went through in this world was all worth it in comparison to what you got for me right now. It's, it was just a, we'll say, it was just a light affliction. I wish I had that perspective when I was going through it because it felt like an eternity when I was in it. I felt like, Lord, I wanna give up, God, help. But yet you're gonna look at that one day and go, that was a light affliction in comparison to the glory that we'll have in eternity. And it's working out for you, Paul says, working for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. Oh man, it's, it's all gonna be worth it, guys. What we have to look forward to as believers in Jesus, we're so blessed. Now, chapter five, again, just has some wonderful truths for us. Paul knew that everything he did in this world had an eternal outcome, not, not regarding his salvation so much, but what would be counted for eternity as I've already alluded to. It's not about working for salvation, it's about working for, again, just that eternal glory. Notice chapter five, verse nine. Like I alluded to already, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So there's gonna be judgment seat for believers. Now this is speaking of the, the Bema seat, which was that place that the, the games, the, the, the sporting event that they would have, where they'd stand before the seat of the judges where they would receive their prize. And there was that, that wreath, that, that um, garland wreath that they would have as kind of saying, look at how I've done in this, in this race or in this competition. But it's a place for, for receiving prizes, the Bema seat. That's what Paul's getting at. This is a place where you're gonna receive rewards. This is not about standing before the judgment seat. Are you good enough to make it in? No, it's about what have you done for the Lord? Because you're gonna be rewarded for that. It's not a place to shame you. It's a place where we're gonna receive that that honor from the Lord in a sense, but whatever we receive, man, I don't believe we're gonna be walking through heaven going, look at what I've got, because Revelation tells us we're gonna be casting our crowns before the feet of the Lord here, that he is worthy, not us. And so I don't think there'll be any boasting or, or, or you know, competition in heaven as some people like to, like to think, but, but no doubt it causes me to say, I, I, wanna, I wanna honor the Lord with my life because it's all gonna count. What we do in this world has value in, in eternity. The things that we do for the Lord. I wanna, I wanna work and, and serve the Lord well. And then Paul saw that his motivation for living was really wrapped up in Christ's sacrifice for him. Look at verse 14 of chapter five. 
He says there in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul says, man, my whole motivation for living is because of what Christ has done for me, because of his sacrifice, because he died for me, that I might live now for him. And because of what Christ did for us, we're all called to go out now and represent and make it known, be ambassadors. That's what it says in chapter five, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As a God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that last verse, isn't that great? That's one of the greatest declarations of what scholars call vicarious atonement or substitutionary atonement. It can be referred to simply as the great exchange where God took all of our sin and he exchanged it for Christ's righteousness. Think about that. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have our sin taken away and have it replaced with the righteousness of Christ. That's amazing. And, and that's again just that work of grace because we didn't deserve any of that. That should have been us on the cross because the wages of sin is death. That was the penalty that we all owed. But he allowed Christ to die in our place. Jesus became that substitute to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. And if you believe that then, then that, then that gives you the confidence and the assurance to know that when you stand before God, you're standing in the righteousness of Christ. Because that's the exchange that took place to those that have put their faith in Jesus. There's so many people I still talk to that struggle over this, that wonder, Am I gonna be counted worthy when I stand before God? Am I gonna be brought in as, as one of his? Well, none of us are worthy of it. We're not gonna be counted worthy. But the key is, are you gonna be counted in the righteousness of Christ? And that doesn't come through your works, your efforts. That comes through your faith in Jesus. When you acknowledge that, yeah, I'm a sinner, but thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin on the cross. I receive you as my savior. Because when I do that, now I've been, I've been given the righteousness of Christ. When I stand before God, I'm so confident that I'm gonna be standing in the righteousness of Jesus. Do you have that confidence? You should, because that's the assurance that we're to have. That if you're in Christ, then you have life, life eternal. That's the blessing of being a follower of Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus. What a great truth that is for us today. Well, Paul again explains that the trials that he's been through now has not disqualified him as a minister, but rather has confirmed his ministry. And it shows that he's doing everything with a heart that is to serve others and honor God. Look at chapter six, verse four, to see what I mean here. Chapter six, verse four. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, 
in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report, good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul shows that he might not have much, but he has lived his life in an exemplary way. And with that, Paul goes on to show that they, that they have not been restricted by him, but rather they've been restricted by their own worldly affections. Paul, Paul was kind of the target to go, oh, he's just this guy leading us astray. We shouldn't, we shouldn't follow him. Paul says, no, it's not. Not my deal, my problem. It's your own worldly affections. Look at what we see here. Chapter six, verse 14. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? You know, I've seen it time and time again where believers get entangled in partnerships with those that don't have the same heart or, or biblical principles and you end up going in two different directions and there are those that try to say oh no we'll we'll make this work you know because of my love for god and though he's not a follower or she's not a follower of god it's okay we'll make this work and whether it be in romantic relationships whether it be in business partnerships what happens is that you end up going in different directions. If Jesus is to be your greatest passion and this person doesn't acknowledge your honor or live for the Lord, then how can you not be going in two different directions? And then how can you walk in, in unity and in, and in partnership if you're going in two different directions? And yet how often I've seen people try. And sadly what happens, and of course, you know, the big thing is, well, I'm just gonna try to win them over to the Lord. That's my objection here, or my objective, I should say. My objection is don't do it. My, a lot of people say my objective is to do that. I'm gonna win them over to the Lord. And yet what happens is, oftentimes, sadly, it's the believer that gets pulled over with the unbeliever more so and starts following that way. See, just, it, it just is not a good thing. That, and Paul calls them on it. You've been, you've been pulled in different directions here. And it's not to say that we abandon all relationships with unbelievers. That's not what Paul is saying. That's the very people that we're to be reaching out to and having relationships with so as to share the gospel with, to, to reveal Jesus to. Paul is referring to those partnerships that require a level of intimacy and unity that can be compromised and hindered when not walking with a common purpose of serving God. This is what Paul is getting at here. So you need to be very careful of those things, not to be pulled away from the Lord by other people in relationships that are not healthy and shouldn't be operating in that, in that way. Now, when Paul had written his, his first letter, he was a little bit worried that some may have interpreted it to be a little bit too harsh, 
like I said, it was a very corrective letter that Paul had, had written to the church in, in Corinth there. And Paul had been waiting for this word from Titus to come in and share what, you know, the response has been from people. Well, while Paul was in Macedonia, most likely in Philippi, he receives word from Titus. And it says in chapter 7, verse 6, look at this here, chapter 7, verse 6, nevertheless, chapter 7, verse 6, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done this wrong or done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So again, Paul alludes to this man that had to be rebuked, corrected, and saying it was more than just writing to him. It was for all of your sakes that this was being written. But now we see here Paul emphasizing repentance and repentance is so key. It's so important that we're being those that are bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Now, what is that exactly? It's the evidence of a transformed life. We think of repentance as that initial, okay, I've seen my sin, now I, I need to yield and give my life to the Lord. Okay, that's, I've repented. But, you know, repentance is an ongoing thing. And again, bearing the fruits of repentance where we're saying, I, I want to continue to be yielding to the Lord and going God's direction and turning all the more from my way and my life. And, and it's the evidence now that fruits worthy of repentance is the evidence of a life that is more so resembling Jesus each day. It's shown that we no longer want to live according to our sinful nature, but rather be living according to the new man, the, the spiritual man, the new creation in Christ that that Paul brings up in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That new creation in him. So that's fruits worthy of repentance, just being made more like Jesus. And as Paul continues to validate and defend his ministry, he now shifts focus a little bit here. And he talks about a collection now in chapters eight and nine that was being collected for the believers in Jerusalem who were going through a tough time, whether it be um, because of these Jews now right in the, in the heart of Jerusalem, this religious capital, as followers, as people were starting to live their life for Jesus, perhaps being shunned, you know, excommunicated from all family and livelihood, they were in great need. It could have been because of a greater form of persecution that was coming into the, the early church there in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, there was people in Jerusalem, these believers that were in great need. And other churches that Paul was ministering to in Asia, Macedonia, and the like, 
are hearing about this and they now, as new converts, are going, hey, we want to come alongside and help these brothers and sisters of ours. And so this collection started to be taken up to help those that were in need in Jerusalem. And so Paul now takes that and, and he begins to, to talk to the Corinthians about this collection that was already addressed to them, but wanting to stir this up in them again and to see how they're doing it and, and really encourage them in this generosity. These chapters here, eight and nine, give us really the best model of Christian giving that, that we see in the New Testament. Look at chapter eight, verse one. Let's read a few verses here. Chapter eight, verse one. Moreover, brethren, we make it known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. So he's talking about all the other churches that they were, were you know, rallying around and they're, they're giving. And so Paul wants to see if, if this church is going to be affected by that and, and, and follow suit in a sense. And he talks about how this church in Corinth had excelled in many things, right? They had excelled in, in, in speech and in faith and knowledge. But he wants to see if they will excel also in this act of gracious giving. He says at the end of verse 7, see that you abound in this grace also. Notice that. That grace, he's speaking about the, the giving, generosity. It's a grace. It's, it's giving something that's not deserved. That's what grace is. And so he's looking to, to say, are you willing to, to give here? And he says in, in, in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. That's interesting. I love that. He says, there's no command. I'm just comparing you to what others are doing to see if your love is real. Ouch, that's kind of heavy, right? He's like, I'm just trying to test your faith based on what other people are doing. Are you guys gonna live up to what I'm seeing in these other churches? He's like really kind of, you know, fueling the fire a little bit here, right? It's like if I were to come out on a Sunday and say to the second service people, listen, that first service group, my goodness, boy, did they ever worship God well. Oh boy, they were exuberant in their worship. Hey, I'm not, not telling you what to do. Just gonna see second service people if you're gonna do as well as they did in the first service. That's kind of what Paul is saying here, right? It's gonna see how well you do in, in comparison. It's a bit of a motivator that he's throwing out there to them. Then in chapter nine, verse five, he says this. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. So again, it's been brought up before. They promised they're gonna do it that it may be ready as a matter of generosity, not as a grudging obligation, verse six. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So Paul wants this, this gift, this collection, to be done out of gladness and generosity. He didn't want this to be a matter of obligation. And, and it should never be that way, even for us. We, we tend to sometimes look at giving as an obligation. Well, you know, it's in the Bible, so I... Uh, I got to do it, you know, if I'm going to be seen as a good Christian. And sometimes we, we put this obligation on ourselves, but that's not what God does. God's not, not needing your money. God's not saying, come on, guys, pick it up a little bit. Falling a little bit behind here, but just no worries, just try. God's not, not saying, I need your money. No, he's interested in your heart. And, and your giving is a great indicator of where your heart is. You see, it begins to reveal, am I trusting the Lord here? Am I trusting the Lord with, with all things? See, that's really where oftentimes the rubber hits the road in, in our finances to where we go, well, sometimes I just, I can't. I don't have the money. But are we, are we trusting God first? And, and notice there, I mean, um, the church... In, in chapter eight, verse two, the other churches, in a great trial of affection, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They were giving beyond kind of their means, you see. And, and I believe there's a great principle, and Paul brings it up here, that those who, who sow bountifully will reap bountifully, that you know, we just can't outgive God. But the bottom line is that God's not demanding your money he's 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 wanting you just to be a worshiper of god through your giving through your gifts to say god everything that i have i understand is yours to begin with so i want to give back to you in 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 reflection in honor in worship to say god this is all because of you anyways i want to i want to give back to you and that's what what paul uh, alludes to here that everything is from the Lord already anyways. And, and it's, it's so important that, I mean, there's so much to say about this area, and I'm just trying to sum it up here, but the Lord doesn't want us to be doing this out of a, I need to, I have to, but uh, I want to. I want to honor the Lord in this. I want to I serve God through these things. And, and you don't have to, you don't have to put a, a percentage on it. You don't have to say, well, it's got to be this amount. It's got to be that. Just make that between you and the Lord. I love how Jesus, when that widow was coming into the temple, and it says Jesus was watching how people gave. I think he was watching the kind of that heart. What's their attitude in this? Certainly wasn't about, you know, are they giving a little, you know, three-pointers or trying to get in the, in the offering box here? Are they kind of doing around the, the back thing? How do they give? You know, what form? Did, no, it, it was about their heart, I believe, their attitude. And this widow came, just gave one mite, nothing. And yet the Lord says, man, she, she gave more than everybody else. 
because she gave out of her, her place of need in a sense. And it wasn't much, but she said, here's what I have I'm going to give to the Lord. I want to honor the Lord in that. And it's, and it's showing your trust in God, believing that though I might be giving when it hurts, I'm going to trust God that he's more than able to make up for that. He's more than able to provide for me. I know many of you have had testimonies where you've seen the Lord provide in ways where you just go, man, I, I'm hurting, but you trust the Lord and you've seen him come through and provide. It's the very principle that Jesus himself speaks about in Luke 6, 38. Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom for the same measure that you use. It'll be measured back to you. I love that. Skip Heidzik said this, you can give out of sheer obedience or you can enjoy doing it, knowing that you can't outgive God and that he loves it when you take pleasure in giving back to him. You can either be a sad giver, doing it begrudgingly, a mad giver out of necessity, or you can be a glad giver, cheerfully. And that word cheerfully is, is there in 2 Corinthians um, 9 verse 7. That word cheerful is the word hilarious. Be like just a joyous giver. It's like, oh Lord, this is so good. I get to give. That's not usually the sentiment when you're having to give, but when we understand we're giving it to God and he blesses it. Man, you can be a hilarious, cheerful giver. That's the, the heart that God wants to see behind it. Now, in this last section, Paul speaks a little more boldly with a little more fire because Again, false teachers are infiltrating the church and we're drawing or, or trying their best to discredit Paul here. Now, Paul isn't so much fighting for his own character, but rather fighting for the Corinthians that they wouldn't be deceived and roped in by these schemers at work in the church. So he says here in chapter 10, verse one, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold towards you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And then in verse 12 of chapter 10, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. There were those in the church that were going to look at me in comparison to this person. I'm so much smarter, so much wiser, so much better than that person. They're commending themselves based on, on other people. Paul says in verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our, our authority did not extend to you. For it was you, to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in another men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. See, Paul didn't want to or have to, you know, kind of toot his own horn. His desire was to glorify God. People are not validated because they validate themselves. They're validated because God validates them or as Paul says, commends them. So in trying to bring people along to see his credentials now as one called by God as he's having to deal with these, these schemers in the church that were trying to discredit Paul and his apostolic authority, 
Paul here reluctantly now lays out his experiences. And he calls himself a fool because he's having to take this route. Not because he wants to, because he knows he's got to kind of speak their language in a sense here. That he has to, you know, counter the claims of the false apostles. So he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16, jump over there. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. So he's having to take this role as like, like the other fools in the church. He says, listen, let me speak as a fool then. Let me share with you kind of my real credentials and the things I've been through. So let's move to verse 22 now at chapter 11. He says, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? Yep, me too. Are they ministers of Christ? Listen, I'm speaking as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. Think about all these things that Paul's been through. Paul's laying out the very things he's been through. I mean, he's been shipwrecked and left out in the, in the ocean a night and a day shipwrecked. I mean, that's, this is crazy stuff. I mean, you can't write a more, you know, interesting Hollywood script than the life of Paul, right? It's amazing. He says there in verse 26, in journeys, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often, in hunger and thirst and fastings, often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, I'm like, you mean there's more? There's other things that you're not mentioning? I mean, that's a pretty exhaustive list that it seems like I've just read there. But he says, and besides the other things that I won't even get, you're like, what? I, what have you, man, Paul, you have lived like a thousand lives here, basically. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep con concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity or my, my weaknesses. So Paul lays out all that he's been through all the stuff that he's endured. If he wasn't truly called to God, if he wasn't a true apostle, do you think he would have continued on? Oh man, he would have abandoned it long ago. He's like, I'm, I'm serving the Lord here. This isn't about me. It's evident because if it was about me, I would have packed it in, you know, after the first, you know, shipwreck. <laughs> it would have been enough for me at that point. Or the first you know, beating and, and, and stripes it across my back. But that would have been a, a done, but no. He's continued on. And in chapter 12, Paul now brings up this experience he had where he's taken up to heaven. Chapter 12, verse three to four. He's trying to, he's trying to say, listen, there was this man that was taken up to the third heavens, up to paradise. And he's trying to talk about this as though it's in the third person. It's not really him. 
you know, some person he's read. And then he's trying not to put the emphasis on it. Eventually it leads to like, okay, you know, it was me. Yes, I'm, I'm talking about myself here. But, but to keep himself grounded, Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh that he prayed three times he'd taken from him, but yet was not taken away. Now, some say the experience that led to Paul being taken up to the third heavens was when he was stoned there in, in Lystra. He was taken out, Acts chapter 14, verse 19, talks about how he was taken out uh, and left for dead, basically, after being stoned. People thought, that's it, Paul's done. Many believe that it's at that time that he was literally, like, kind of passed away momentarily, was taken up to the third heaven. And then the thorn in the flesh may have been some kind of eye injury that he endured as a result of the stoning. Some believe that it could have been that. Paul refers to the large letters oftentimes that he wrote with his own writing at the end of a letter he was writing. Oftentimes being dictated, but then in the end he'd write with large letters because of an eye injury. Yeah, some, that's the idea. It could be like post-concussion syndrome that he said that nobody knew about back then that, you know, as a result of stoning, I think that's, you know, no doubt what he had been dealing with. But we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Nevertheless, it was given to him for a purpose. See, Paul so remarkably saw all this as just an opportunity to trust the Lord all the more. Look at what he writes in chapter 12, verse nine. I love this. And he said to me, this is after Paul said, I prayed three times that have taken me, that, that he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's incredible. Paul says, I prayed, but here's how the Lord ministered to me. Here's how the Lord comforted me. Paul, don't worry about it. Because my grace is sufficient for you. Because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's in your weakness that you're going to see me at work all the more. Why? Because we know it's not, it's not us. It, it's not of us. We know this isn't, I can't do this, I'm weak. I need the Lord. And it causes us to lean on the Lord all the more. So Paul could say, and you look at this and you go, Paul, you are like, you're just, you're just tripping, you're whacked out here. He says, I, I will take pleasure in infirmities, in distresses, in reproaches, in persecutions. Paul says, I take pleasure in those things. You're thinking, you're, you like lost it. That stoning did some brain damage to you. This is, but Paul says, I, I take pleasure in those things because that way I see the Lord do a greater work. He steps in in my weakness and his strength is made more, it's, it's revealed in a greater way. That's amazing. Do we approach life that way? Do we look at, at our hardships and difficulties that way where we say, man, in my distresses, in my persecutions, in my, in, in my hardships, I can rejoice because then God comes in and he, and he picks me up and he reveals his strength in those times. That's what Paul was able to say. Amazing. Well, he ends this letter and we got to wrap it up. Sorry, I've gone so long here, but what a, what a great book. I mean, it's, it's one that I think, like I said, you kind of 
overlook it oftentimes. You know, Second Corinthians, ah, you know. But when you go through it, it's like, wow, there's there some rich things in here for us. So Paul ends the letter here in chapter 13, verse 7. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. What a great benediction he gives here. But I love what he says there, be complete. Now you might look at that and you go, whoa, man. But that idea is just like, keep becoming perfect or, or maturing in your walk. In other words, we understand none of us have arrived, right? None of us can say, I've done all I can do. No, there's always room for improvement. There's always room to keep growing and maturing and becoming complete. And he says, be of one mind. Now, we oftentimes are battling over, you know, whose mind is gonna win out here. It's my mind that we need. No, it's, it's Christ's mind that we need to say, that's what I wanna have. I wanna have his mind in these matters. And when we begin to look to honor the Lord and have his mind, then, then there's just gonna be a greater unity among us. There's gonna be a greater peace, as, as Paul says here. And the great blessing is that the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, notice what Paul's saying here. Be of one mind. Be of good comfort. Become complete. These are things that you're not just to pray into though you need to do that or, or just kind of try them out he says be them live this way this is how you are to be and again the blessing the outcome is superb when we do because we just get to see the love of god and the peace of god with us all the more now verse 12 is not you know some people like to use that as a bit of a pickup line. Hey, honey, I just want to practice following the word here. Second Corinthians 13, verse 12. Greet one of the holy kiss. I just want to lay that on you. You know, that's sometimes used. It's not, that was a common thing in that day where Christians would greet one of the holy kiss. It's not something that, you know, is a part of our culture, all right? You, you might greet one of the holy kiss and get, returned with a, a holy hit, you know, across holy uppercut. Don't try that out, right? In our day, it might be a holy handshake or something that we wanna follow. But I love that last verse, verse 14. It's the only place in the New Testament where the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, are mentioned together in this kind of benediction and blessing. It's so cool that Paul includes in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. The glorious three in one here, the Trinity being mentioned. And so he gives that as a great blessing to the church here. Well, boy, it's late. Okay, I don't know why we, how we went so late, but that's a great, a, a great book there. So let's um, pray. And then, uh, yeah, we'll be done. Lord, thank you so much, God, for this time together. And just to uh, go through your word here. And, and what great truths and, and, and riches that we have here 
in 2 Corinthians to learn from, to grow by, and I pray that, Lord, we take these things to heart, Lord, and we've covered much, but I pray that there'd be those little nuggets that we are, are planting in our heart to really just feast on over the next few days and just strengthen the church here at Riverside, strengthen my brothers and sisters and encourage them through your word and help us to put these things into practice and live it out, Lord. Thank you that you are the God of all comfort, that no matter what we're going through, God, you want to come and comfort us and and help us to realize that there's always purpose through those things, God. It's to see, sometimes in our our difficulties, it's to see your strength be be made more manifest and real in our lives. It's so that we can come alongside and, and comfort others through the experience we've had through you, God. There's always purpose through it. Help us to have that right perspective as Paul showed us here tonight. And so we just ask your, your help in these things to live it out now. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.